interrupt this broadcast to bring you a revolution. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now. I'm worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory. Why don't you live for the people? Why don't you struggle for the people? Why don't you die for the This is 91.7 The Edge, WSUW. I am your host, Kenny G, and always this is Stay Woke, where we pretty much undiscover truths and provide a voice to the voiceless. Now, my topic today is one that many young people don't think about on a daily basis, and they probably ignore it unless it affects someone that is close to them. So I'm in a studio by myself today without a guest, but that's okay because what I'm talking about today will probably help you or someone you know. So stay tuned. I think it's going to be a good one. I think it's going to be one of the most informative shows that Stay Woke has ever had, if I may say so myself. But first, here's why you need to stay woke. Worldwide, nearly 44 million people have Alzheimer's or related dementia. Only one in four people with Alzheimer's disease have been diagnosed. So that's my topic today. Alzheimer's and dementia You may be familiar with the terms, but how much do you know about both and why should you care? I'm going to get get into all of that today, and I'm going to share some TED Talks that I found that were very interesting on this topic. So I think you're going to enjoy that as well. But let's start with what is Alzheimer's and dementia and what's the difference between the two? Because I often think that those two are very similar or interchangeable, but really... Alzheimer's is a type of dementia that causes problems with memory, thinking, and behavior. And dementia itself isn't a specific disease, rather it's a group of symptoms. It's the loss of cognitive functioning, which is thinking, remembering, reasoning, and behavioral abilities to such an extent that it interferes with a person's daily life and activities. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of a progressive dementia. There are other types of dementia that you probably aren't aware of or aren't as familiar with other than Alzheimer's. And they are vascular dementia, which is often caused by a major stroke or one or more silent strokes, which can happen without someone even realizing it. And some symptoms associated with it are trouble speaking or understanding speech. Um, Problems recognizing sights and sounds that used to be familiar, being confused or agitated. There's also Parkinson's disease dementia. So on average, the symptoms of dementia develop about 10 years after a person first gets Parkinson's. There are other examples of dementia that you can go look up if you want to learn more. The list continues, a lot of them that I wasn't really familiar with. And fun fact, Dr. Solomon Carter Fuller was one of the first known black psychiatrists and worked alongside Dr. Alois Alzheimer, who, of course, the term Alzheimer's is named after. So I know Black History Month is over, but there you go. Fun Black History Month, a fact. So sticking with the theme of facts, let's get into some more. According to Alzheimer's.net, two in three people with Alzheimer's are women. And the most surprising thing that I found was African-American and Hispanic Americans are more likely to develop Alzheimer's than white Americans. 
The second thing I found to be interesting is a typical life expectancy after an Alzheimer's diagnosis is four to eight years. So it can be a fatal disease, Alzheimer's, which I was shocked to learn. For me, that made this issue of Alzheimer's even more alarming. And it's often viewed as an old timer's disease because majority of the people with Alzheimer's are 65 and older. But Alzheimer's is not restricted to a person in their early 60s. Up to 5% of people with the disease have early onset, onset Alzheimer's. And so they call that younger onset, which often appears when someone is in their 30s, maybe their 40s or 50s. And the scary thing about Alzheimer's is many people dismiss the warning signs, believing that these symptoms are a normal part of aging. So in my first TED Talk that I want to play today, it's by Samuel Cohen. He's a research fellow in biophysical chemistry at St. John's College and the Center for Misfolding Diseases in the Department of Chemistry at the University of Cambridge. And he really just talks about why he believes Alzheimer's is curable. In the year 1901, a woman called Augusta was taken to a medical asylum in Frankfurt. Augusta was delusional and couldn't remember even the most basic details of her life. Her doctor was called Alwis. Alwis didn't know how to help Augusta, but he watched over her until sadly she passed away in 1906. After she died, Alwis performed an autopsy and found strange plaques and tangles in Augusta's brain, the likes of which he'd never seen before. Now, here's the even more striking thing. If Augusta had instead been alive today, we could offer her no more help than Alwis was able to 114 years ago. Alwis was Dr. Alwis Alzheimer. And Augusta Dieter was the first patient to be diagnosed with what we now call Alzheimer's disease. Since 1901, medicine has advanced greatly. We've discovered antibiotics and vaccines to protect us from infections, many treatments for cancer, antiretrovirals for HIV, statins for heart disease, and much more. But we've made essentially no progress at all in treating Alzheimer's disease. I'm part of a team of scientists who's been working to find a cure for Alzheimer's for over a decade, so I think about this all the time. Alzheimer's now affects 40 million people worldwide, but by 2050, it will affect 150 million people, which, by the way, will include many of you. If you're hoping to live to be 85 or older, your chances of getting Alzheimer's will be almost one in two. In other words, odds are you'll spend your golden years either suffering from Alzheimer's or helping to look after a friend or loved one with Alzheimer's. Already in the United States alone, Alzheimer's care costs $200 billion every year. One out of every five Medicare dollars gets spent on Alzheimer's. It is today the most expensive disease, and costs are projected to increase fivefold by 2050 as the baby boomer generation ages. It may surprise you that, put simply, Alzheimer's is one of the biggest medical and social challenges of our generation, but we've done relatively little to address it. Today, of the top 10 causes of death worldwide, Alzheimer's is the only one we cannot prevent, cure, or even slow down. 
we understand less about the science of Alzheimer's than other diseases because we've invested less time and money into researching it. The US government spends 10 times more every year on cancer research than on Alzheimer's, despite the fact that Alzheimer's costs us more and causes a similar number of deaths each year as cancer. But the lack of resources stems from a more fundamental cause, a lack of awareness. Because here's what few people know, but everyone should. Alzheimer's is a disease, and we can cure it. For most of the past 114 years, everyone, including scientists, mistakenly confused Alzheimer's with aging. We thought that becoming senile was a normal and inevitable part of getting old. But we only have to look at a picture of a healthy-age brain compared to the brain of an Alzheimer's patient to see the real physical damage caused by this disease. As well as triggering severe loss of memory and mental abilities, the damage to the brain caused by Alzheimer's significantly reduces life expectancy and is always fatal. Remember Dr. Alzheimer found strange plaques and tangles in Augusta's brain a century ago? For almost a century, we didn't know much about these. Today, we know they're made from protein molecules. You can imagine a protein molecule as a piece of paper that normally folds into an elaborate piece of origami. There are spots on the paper that are sticky, and when it folds correctly, these sticky bits end up on the inside. But sometimes things go wrong, and some sticky bits are on the outside. This causes the protein molecules to stick to each other, forming clumps that eventually become large plaques and tangles. That's what we see in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. We've spent the past 10 years at the University of Cambridge trying to understand how this malfunction works. There are many steps, and identifying which step to try to block is complex, like diffusing a bomb. Cutting one wire might do nothing. Cutting others might make the bomb explode. We have to find the right step to block, and then create a drug that does it. Until recently, we've for the most part been cutting wires and hoping for the best. But now we've gathered together a diverse group of people, medics, biologists, geneticists, chemists, physicists, engineers, and mathematicians. And together, we've managed to identify a critical step in the process, and are now testing a new class of drugs which should specifically block this step and stop the disease. Now, let me show you some of our latest results. No one outside of our lab has seen these yet. Let's look at some videos of what happened when we tested these new drugs in worms. So these are healthy worms, and you can see they're moving around normally. These worms, on the other hand, have protein molecules sticking together inside them, like humans with Alzheimer's, and you can see they're clearly sick. But if we give our new drugs to these worms at an early stage, then we see that they're healthy, and they live a normal lifespan. This is just an initial positive result. But research like this shows us that Alzheimer's is a disease that we can understand and we can cure. After 114 years of waiting, there's finally real hope for what can be achieved in the next 10 or 20 years. But to grow that hope, to finally beat Alzheimer's, we need help. This isn't about scientists like me, it's about you. We need you to raise awareness that Alzheimer's is a disease and that if we try, we can beat it. In the case of other diseases, patients and their families have led the charge for more research and put pressure on governments, the pharmaceutical industry, 
scientists and regulators. That was essential for advancing treatment for HIV in the late 1980s. Today, we see that same drive to beat cancer, but Alzheimer's patients are often unable to speak up for themselves, and their families, who are the hidden victims, caring for their loved ones night and day, are often too worn out to go out and advocate for change. So, it really is down to you. Alzheimer's isn't, for the most part, a genetic disease. Everyone with a brain is at risk. Today, there are 40 million patients like Augusta who can't create the change they need for themselves. Help speak up for them and help demand a cure. Thank you. That was Dr. Samuel Cohen, and he brought up some pretty good points. He talked about the cost of Alzheimer's, which we're going to get into later, and the mystery that really still surrounds the disease and how people have been advocating for cancer research and you spend all of your energies on such a, an important thing as cancer. But Alzheimer's is so costly that you need people to start investing more resources, more time into figuring out how you can slow it down, prevent it or cure it in some ways. And he brought up a good point about it's a group effort. You have to get people from multiple disciplines to come and provide their expertise and study the brain because it's such a complicated uh, muscle, I guess you can say. And you need different people that can look at it in a different way. And so I thought that was really interesting. Now, the second talk from the TED videos is Dr. William Klein. And he's a professor at Northwestern University's Department of Neurobiology. And he really speaks about the issue of Alzheimer's and how it has evolved over time. Now he's going to use a lot of medical jargon, but he makes a really good point as well. Um, Alzheimer's disease. What am I going to do about it? Uh, let's start this way. Picture a person, okay? Picture a person who can't remember recent events. Person, in fact, who can't even walk, can't eat, can't dress himself, uh, overall confined to bed in a fetal position, totally helpless. So maybe this was the person you were imagining? No, maybe not. Uh, but this person here can't do these things because of an absence of neural circuits. So this person is growing his brain or her brain. Uh, in order to make these functions happen. Now what happens after all these beautiful circuits have been created, as you get old, Alzheimer's disease starts to make those circuits unravel. This is a, an image, a photograph of the very first Alzheimer's patient. Her name was Augusta D. This language down here is incontinent, screaming terribly, etc. Those are actually Alzheimer's words himself as he was taking care of Augusta D. He was a neurologist and met her regularly. In one of his sessions with her, he asked her to pick up a pen and write her name down, and she couldn't do it. What she said instead was, I have lost myself. And actually, I heard my mother-in-law say exactly the same words as she was going through Alzheimer's disease. Now, we can appreciate intellectually what Alzheimer's disease must be like, but what I like about this series of self-portraits from William Untermullins is he shows us what it's like inside, what it feels like 
to have Alzheimer's disease. He had Alzheimer's disease. He was, a, he was a portrait artist. His wife said, keep painting. And as you can see, as the disease progressed, he lost more and more of himself. Alzheimer's, it's a progressive disease. It begins with memory loss, a serious memory loss, and it's ultimately fatal. Part of the progression is the fact that changes in the brain, the dysfunctional aspects of the brain, the pathology in the brain, actually begins decades before dementia, which is something we all need to be concerned about, even when we're, rel when we're relatively young. I mean, when you're relatively young. One in eight persons over 65 has Alzheimer's disease. How early can it begin? The earliest that we know is uh, a pair of Polish brothers who had Alzheimer's disease in their 20s. Very rare, due to a mutation. Matter of fact, there are some types of Alzheimer's disease that are inherited. This is usually early onset Alzheimer's disease, but as I said, it's very rare. It's very rare, but the sporadic form of Alzheimer's disease is very common, and it's very costly. It's the third most costly of all diseases. It's costing the, our economy over $200 billion a year. And unfortunately, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's is imprecise. And even worse, the therapeutics are basically worthless. So you have to ask yourself, what would you do? And if you were paying attention to Robbie's talk like I was, which was a fantastic talk, he said, what you want to do is look and see what's going bad. And that's exactly what Alzheimer did in 1906. So not only was he treating Augusta D, he was a scientist as well. She died in her early 50s. When she died, he uh, did an autopsy on her brain, applied state-of-the-art technology, and he was able to see changes in her brain that hadn't been noticed before. So what you see here is a piece of human brain tissue, not Augusta D's, but more modern, and in the center, there's something labeled A. That's an amyloid plaque. It's a characteristic of Alzheimer's disease. And we can see it because it's stained with a protein stain. And these are individual neurons. This one is diseased. These over here, they're perfectly normal. So these are pathologies that Alzheimer discovered in the brain of Augusta D. The amazing thing is Nothing happened for five or six decades afterwards. Early pathology detected in the 1970s. It took until the 1970s before people made the next really exciting discovery. And that is an important neurotransmitter called acetylcholine is drastically lowered in the brains of Alzheimer's disease. What difference does that make? Well, experiments that were also going on in the 1970s in learning and memory laboratories found that if you take a drug and block the action of acetylcholine in a region of the brain called the hippocampus, learning is blocked. Basically, you have amnesia. So when there's acetylcholine functioning badly, there's a failure of learning. So what do you do? Try to restore acetylcholine in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, the way to target it was to go after an enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine called acetylcholinesterase. And the very first drugs to treat, be, to be used to treat Alzheimer's disease were those that were capable of inhibiting the breakdown of acetylcholine. And you probably may or may not know, but this was extraordinarily lucrative. One of the drugs Aricept was bringing into its company, Esai, $3 billion a year. And the problem is, it didn't really work. 
worked for a little while, and then the effects disappeared, and people continued to develop the same progressive loss of uh, cognitive function. The problem was it wasn't disease modifying. Acetylcholine is made at synapses in the brain, and it's used at synapses in the brain. But in the brain, as you can see from these uh, images here, the synapses and where they're located deteriorate with dementia. This is a, a normal looking neuron from a human brain. This is one that's deteriorated, and here's one that's totally damaged. And what we see is this is the type of neuron that appears in a normal elderly person. This is the type of neuron that appears in somebody with dementia. So again, what to do? What to do? What we want to do is discover the cause of that loss and then deal with it. Well, it turns out that there are a number of diseases, Alzheimer's being one of them, in which good proteins go bad. Mad cow disease, type 2 diabetes, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease with its plaques and tangles. All of those plaques and the tangles in Alzheimer's disease, well, they're made of a very specific protein, different proteins than these other diseases. And when you look at what those proteins do, they stick to each other and develop these fibrils that are called amyloid. The major focus in Alzheimer's disease for over 20 years has been amyloid that's derived from a normal peptide in the brain. That normal peptide is called A-beta. This little cartoon here says, look, here's a, here's a protein that's found in the membrane of a nerve cell. All these beta, alpha, gamma, epsilon, those are enzymes that break up that protein, part of normal metabolism. And through that complicated normal metabolism, you end up with a small peptide, only 42 amino acids long, called A-beta, that's normal. You're all making A-beta a lot in your brains. I'm making it too. You're clearing it out very well. I'm probably clearing it out not so well. If you could see this a little better, this is an image showing individual molecules of A-beta by an atomic force microscope. If that A-beta is allowed to be in solution with itself for a day even at a high concentration, this is what happens. It converts into these very gnarly looking ugly fibrils. Those fibrils are toxic. And these types of observations gave rise to an important hypothesis called the amyloid cascade hypothesis, dominated the field for a long time. This is a human nerve cell in a, in a culture dish. This is some amyloid that we synthesized, and you can see that they interact with each other here. So A-beta solutions in a test tube, they slowly form neurotoxins. What those uh, uh, toxic solutions uh, contain are these large fibrils of amyloid. Actually, those types of amyloid that you see in a test tube are almost identical to what you see in the brain of somebody who has Alzheimer's disease. Importantly, human genetics showed that people who had inherited forms of Alzheimer's disease, the mutations that were related to that and caused it all linked back to the A-beta peptide. It caused A-beta to go up. So that gave rise to the amyloid cascade hypothesis. It said very simply, elegantly, Alzheimer's disease is nerve cell death caused by deposits like these of amyloid fibrils. Now you have a target, and you again ask yourself what to do. 
Well, you'd like to be able to clear out that stuff from the brain. And there was a very brilliant idea that came out of a group in San Francisco, headed by Dale Shank, who developed a vaccine. So he had an antibody and a vaccine that could clear away this amyloid in mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. This was in 1999. This has gone to the clinic now. And the results have just started to come out strongly over the last couple of years. They failed. So Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson had a vaccine that they developed to clear out amyloid plaques, and the consequences were basically nil. Why is that? Really, it's the wrong target. And we try, but sometimes we don't hit the right target. But the beauty of science is good ideas ultimately, eventually, beat bad ones. For example, in 350 BC, it was known to the Greeks that mind resides in the liver, which is a perfectly sensible, sensible idea. And, and actually, only, uh, after only 2,000 years, it uh, became clear to science that maybe it's in the brain and not in the liver. Well, we've just heard that the acetylcholine hypothesis really didn't work too well. Amyloid plaque vaccines are inadequate. So what are we looking at these days? Today, it looks like the toxin that accumulates in the brains of Alzheimer's people is related to plaques, but different. It's an A-beta oligomer, not an A-beta amyloid fibril. This is some work that was discovered by our team a number of years ago. What we found was that fibrils really aren't the only toxins made by A-beta. These are the fibrils that I showed you before. But instead, what we discovered, if you start with the very same A-beta peptide in a test tube, if you adjust the conditions in one way, you get fibrils. If you adjust the conditions just a little bit, you get these small dots, which turn out to be oligomers of A-beta rather than fibrils. This is work that came uh, from my lab in collaboration with Grant Kraft and uh, Tuck Finch at USC. And uh, we were so excited about this uh, finding that, uh, that ultimately uh, we ended up starting a company called Acumen, which I'll mention again in a bit. So structurally, those are very interesting molecules. But even more interestingly is what they do. So what you're looking at here is a nerve cell in a dish, a piece of a nerve cell. And these little um, protrusions, this is a dendrite here, uh, these little protrusions are parts of a synapse. They're called synaptic spines. And this is what the spines look like normally, shortly after exposure to addles. We call these addles, these A-beta oligomers that they're toxic. We call them addles. Um, however, once those synapses have been exposed to addles for three hours, the morphology is completely different. Now they're long, thin, lollipop-like structures with a little bead on the top. Clearly. A, strong morphological pathology being induced by them. Is that significant? Well, here's an example. These are human images from human brain, stained where the dendrite uh, is stained with a, uh, a particular tool. And you see these short, stubby spines of the synapses, just like what we see here. And in individuals who had died and had mental retardation, fragile X syndrome, the spines, the synapses are totally morphologically altered, just like what we see with the adults. So the notion uh, is that this is 
in fact, very neurologically significant. And there's a, a, a raft of data suggesting that's the case. And, and that has led the NIH to put out this diagram in which damaged neurons in Alzheimer's disease, that damage that leads to dementia, is attributed to the toxic action of oligomers acting at these little spots on the surface. Amyloid fibril plaques, they're off to the side, no longer center stage in understanding the cause of the disease. If we drill down just a bit to see why these addles might be neurotoxins, can we go back to putting nerve cells in a dish and expose them to synthetic addles? We can make them in a test tube, and we add them to the cells in a dish, and what we find is that uh, they, they appear at little tiny spots along uh, the dendrites. Those are at synapses. What they do when they're there is cause a change in the organization and molecular composition of that synapse, leading to memory loss. Quick reality check. Do these have anything to do with what's going on in the brain? Well, we take that same antibody and find that we can detect these a beta oligomers, these addles in human brains very early in the Alzheimer's disease process before plaques and tangles. A couple last slides here. What I've been talking about is basic research, but what we want to do is go from the bench to the bedside. And what we've been doing is taking those same antibodies that we developed to detect A beta oligomers and make an MRI probe on them. So this is, these are results that we just obtained over the last couple of months. We have a mouse model, and we uh, have one that has Alzheimer's disease, one that doesn't. We give it the probe, and what we can find is the mouse that has Alzheimer's disease gives us a signal. Uh, the mouse that doesn't have any Alzheimer's disease does not. So we think we're going to be able to approach Alzheimer's diagnostics by looking for oligomers in the brain by brain imaging. And we can also use it for therapeutics. The company I mentioned before, Acumen, has developed an antibody in collaboration with Merck that has therapeutic potential. So we expect to be able to deliver this to people, and it will stop the progression of Alzheimer's disease. The problem is most drugs fail. Investigational new drugs don't make it. So what we need is more research to come up with better diagnostics and better therapeutics. Fortunately, there's uh, an investment from the federal government in research into Alzheimer's disease. In fact, it's $500 million a year. Um, and that's enough money to buy every man, woman, and child in this country a cup of coffee. So uh, maybe if you looked at it slightly differently, um, research amounts to this much per year, the cost of care amounts to that. So the ratio is about 400 to 1. Could be a good idea to uh, invest more in Alzheimer's disease. By the way, 40 years from now, when you're going to be seriously worried about it, this is going to be a trillion dollars a year, which is about what all of the military costs of the world are today. So what are we going to do uh, while we're waiting? Take your mom's advice. What she said was, get plenty of exercise and eat right. That works for Alzheimer's disease. Basically, if it's good for your heart, it's good for your brain. And in fact, since you're uh, thinking about these things as finals come up, keep studying. Mental workouts really couldn't hurt. 
Let me finish by saying there are three uh, thank yous I want to give. First of all, to my lab. Uh, that was Dr. William Klein doing a TED Talk. I believe that TED Talk took place at my alma mater, Northern Illinois University. And he brought up some great points. He talked about, in his last few words, he said that when we get older and we start caring about this issue about Alzheimer's and dementia, it's going to be a trillion dollars a year. So it's already expensive as far as research and as far as providing for someone with Alzheimer's or dementia, a trillion dollars a year, which he said was similar to what we spend in the military. That's alarming. And he also talked about the drugs that often don't work. I'm reading an article on full.com, and it says between 2002 and 2012, 244 different drugs were evaluated in clinical research trials. Only one of them ever reached the market. It says why those drugs have failed is complicated, but, but it's partially because of the brain's complexity and the protection provided to the brain by the blood-brain barrier. So that just goes back to the brain is complicated. It takes a while to try to figure out what, what will work, what doesn't work. And while they're trying to figure that out, families are suffering. And especially, there's not only suffering as far as mentally, but it costs a lot of money to take care of a loved one that has Alzheimer's or dementia. I was talking with a lady yesterday, and I told her that I was on a show about Alzheimer's, and she said that her mother is dealing with some form of dementia that they believe they don't really know. But while they were investigating on places that maybe they could send her to that would help her, you know, provide 24-hour watch for her. They wanted five thousand dollars a week or five thousand a month. It was just and then the Medicare didn't cover that extra. And so you're looking at a fat you know, a regular person working a nine to five that's five thousand a month or five thousand a week. A lot of people can't cover that. And so I was looking it up and the New York Times did an article where it says, where it talked about, on average, the out-of-pocket cost for a patient with dementia was 61522 It says more than 80% higher than the cost for someone with heart disease or cancer. It says the reason is that dementia patients need caregivers to watch them, help with basic activities like eating, dressing, and bathing, and provide constant supervision to make sure they don't wander off or harm themselves. And none of those costs are covered by Medicare. Back to the lady that I was talking to, you know, her mom was making 911 calls because she was seeing things or thought she was seeing things. So you need somebody to watch your loved one around the clock, make sure they're not harming themselves. And it just does and you have to pay for that. Back to the New York Times article, it says the reason for the big disparities in out-of-pocket costs for the three diseases they were comparing this to heart disease and cancer, it says, they quoted, Dr. Kelly said, Medicare costs covers discrete medical services like office visits and acute care such as hospitalization and surgery. Expenses for cancer patients and heart patients tend to be of that sort. They often do not need full-time home or nursing home care until the very end of their life, if at all. So they don't have those continuing costs. Dementia patients, in contrast, 
need constant care for years. They may not be sick enough for a nursing home, but cannot be left alone. It says when they are sick enough for a nursing home, that cost is not covered by health insurance. More than half of the patients with dementia, and of course, as we noted earlier, three quarters of that was like racial minorities, are using their savings to pay for the nursing home until nothing is left. It says then Medicaid, of course, a federal state program for low-income people take over. Alzheimer's or dementia patients, they're kind of in this gray area where they're not really sick enough to be in a nursing home, but they also need around-the-clock care. And right now, there's nothing that has been developed to kind of address this problem of what, of what to do and how, that, how can you provide this care without it costing $5,000 a month or a week. I'm looking at something that says like senior homes where it talked about you can put your loved one in a memory care community, and it says ranging from 1000 to 5000 a non-refundable fee that covers administrative expenses and the cost of an apartment. And they, are, they may have other costs, that's private transportation or off-site activities. And another thing that isn't really talked about, you put your loved ones in these memory care communities or another community that, that deals with dementia or Alzheimer's, a lot of time your loved ones, they aren't accustomed to these strangers. And so they're often combative with, with staff because they don't know who these people are. And if they're dealing with memory issues, every day could be a struggle as far as them not knowing who this person is each and every day and them not see seeming familiar. And then you don't know how the staff is at those places. You know, if they're patient or if, you know, if they have a bad day, they might come in and not really care about your loved one. And so you're looking at cost, you're looking at time, and then you're also thinking about what would be best for the person that you love. So I have another clip, and this clip features an actor, Jill Eikenberry and Michael Tucker, and they're pretty much talking about dealing with Jill's, her mom's dementia, and really how to provide the best care for her. As we live longer and the population ages, more and more families will be faced with the decisions about how to provide the best care for their loved ones. I'm Dr. Frieda Lewis-Hall, Chief Medical Officer of Pfizer, and I'm here today with award-winning actors Jill Eikenberry and Michael Tucker to talk about the decisions that they've made with their family and caring for their loved ones. So thank you so much for coming. Welcome, welcome. Delighted to be here. Thanks. Jill, let me start with you. I know that uh, your mother, um, your family provided care for your mother and that she had a diagnosis of dementia and that led to a lot of things for you and your family to come to grips with. Can you talk a little bit about how um, she came to that diagnosis and what some of those early decisions were like? Yeah, it was, um, as often the case, it was a difficult road because we were all in denial about the situation. Um, my mom was starting to show signs of dementia and um, I, I didn't want to see them. So uh, when my mother's husband died at 91 and she started falling and she started slipping farther and farther at a, quite a precipitous pace into dementia, 
um, you know, it was still very hard for me to, to say this is what's happening. I th I've talked to a lot of people who I think get to, to the same point. Mm -hmm. And we brought her back and established her in a um, retirement community with a, a, a assisted care facility. Now, had you, had you come to grips with the fact that she had a diagnosis of dementia yet, or were you bringing her close so that you could kind of watch her more closely but still didn't think she had dementia? I was bringing her close so that she had a place where I could see her more frequently, but I still envisioned that we were going to be able to go to the matinee on Sunday of the theater, whatever, and go to the Metropolitan for lunch, and I still had this idea about what I was going to be able to do with my mother. She was going to snap back. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I did not sign up for the 24-hour care in the assisted uh, care facility because I didn't think she needed it. And very quickly, it became clear that I was wrong. And, and as you were watching kind of all of this unfold, <clears throat> um, were you also in denial or were you kind of a little clearer earlier about what was happening? I was happening? a little clearer earlier, but I didn't know what my job was. You know, was my job to say, snap out of it, this is the truth, and be sort of hard about it? Or was my job just to help her in her denial, in a sense? Um, and I, I walked that, that line. You know, I, I, was, I was there to support her. It, it, it really was a, a caretaker who turned it all around, uh, this wonderful, brilliant Jamaican woman. Um, who, who accepted Jill's mom for what she was then and never knew her as the intellectual and the political activist and this very brilliant woman. <clears throat> she didn't know that woman. She just knew this woman, and she loved that woman. And because of Marcia, her name is Marcia, because of that, Jill's mom finally let go and stopped trying to pretend that she was what she was before. When we made the decision to get my mother out of the care, care the, uh, the assisted care facility and bring her home, essentially, which was an apartment across the hall from us with um, full-time care, with her stuff all around her, uh, she became much less agitated. She became quite calm and seemed to really enjoy a lot of things. And she seemed to love having us all around her, and she knew us and wanted us to be there. So it became a, uh, you know, a blessing. Let's talk a little bit more about the two of you. How, how did this affect uh, your relationship, the way that you talked to each other, the way that you handled things? You mentioned you weren't even sure what your role was at first in this caregiving thing. <coughs> I'm still not sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm just confused all the time. Uh, it, it brought us closer together. It, it, we had a, you know, it was a difficult thing because I, I gave myself the job of making sure that our life didn't suffer too terribly because of this situation. Um, and so I was um, cheerleading for our life while Jill was very staunchly cheerleading to take care of her mom. And I, I think the answer that we finally came up with is that you do both. You, you, you can't give up your life. Um, and you must take care of your parent. So you do both, and you, you sort of uh, take turns. And I'm sure that you learned um, many very important lessons, but if you had to impart one, if there was kind of one thing that you think um, 
everyone should know, what, what would that be? I think this thing about letting someone else, if you can, um, so finding someone good who can be the caretaker or caretakers so that you can be the, the, the daughter or the son or the sister or the spouse, spouse. Mm -hmm. um, and, and not have to do uh, both. Because I, if I had had to do all the hands-on caretaking, um, it would have been very hard for me to have the really wonderful last five years in many ways that I had with my mother. And what about you? I'm sure there were many lessons for you as well. What would be your one? <clears throat> Talk to people. You know, just keep talking to people who have a similar situation, who have had one in the past. Talk to each other. Talk to your kids. Just get everything up and out and don't suppress your feelings and don't suppress your worries and your doubts. Uh, uh, they, they disappear if you talk about them. Jill Eikenberry and Michael Tucker discussing how they dealt with Jill's mother and her dementia. And it's really important. They brought up a good point, which is not only do people that have loved ones that are suffering with dementia or Alzheimer's, not only do they have to deal with the cost of it, but I think the most important is the mental toll that it, it takes on a person. And I found a few things that people might deal with when they are affected by this as far as having family members that that they know they deal with guilt grief grief and loss and they also deal with anger and so the article i was reading it talked about it's common to feel guilty you know guilty for the way the person with dementia was you know maybe treated you know you might have some other guilt that go <laughs> in your past that Others aren't privy to that, you know, your relationship with your with that person, whether it be your parent or just a loved one. And then you may also feel guilty if you have to put that person in residential care because you couldn't provide that 24-hour watch for them. Especially, like, when you think about communities like the Hispanic communities where they value family so much, it's not, I don't believe it's of the norm to put your family members in a residential care. And so you may have that guilt that comes with that. And then you might have, might experience grief, especially if you, if you're really close to that person and then they develop dementia, it totally changes aspects of your relationship. If that person can't remember you or remember the times that you guys shared, you feel a sense of loss, like you've lost a little bit of that person. You've, you know, may have lost some, that person may have lost some memories, and that affects how you guys interact going forward. And then I think a big one is anger. You might be angry, they said, at having to be a caregiver, angry with others who aren't helping you out, angry at the person with dementia for their difficult behaviors, and angry at support services. I think one of the biggest things that I learned by talking with the lady who has a mother that may be dealing with some form of dementia was she was, her and her mother butted heads. You know, they were, she was angry for, um, for some time because her mother just wasn't behaving in the way that she thought she should be. And it took her a while 
to come to grips with this is the new normal. And a lot of the, and then one thing she told me was, you know, you just have to keep talking about it, talking to people, and that's what you heard in the clip with one of the actors. It's really important that you keep talking and just keep you know, asking people about what they've gone through and how they dealt with it. Because it can be it can be a really big thing. A family member or loved one that you once knew behaving in such a different way while they're physically still with you their mind is somewhere else so that could take a very big toll the article goes on and says sometimes you may even feel like shaking pushing or hitting the person with dementia you know and that's that may seem out of the norm for you but it's, it's, it's probably a normal reaction to someone that might be combative with you that you're only trying to help but you have to understand what it is, the disease and the things that they're being dealt with. And so that's that's one of the reasons for this show. You have to keep the conversation going because you may not know who has a loved one that's dealing with dementia or Alzheimer's. They may not talk about it, but they may be harboring feelings. So the last TED Talk that I want to play is about a woman, and she's preparing for Alzheimer's, not prevention, but this global expert has three concrete steps to prepare for the moment, should it arrive, when she herself gets Alzheimer's disease. I'd like to talk about my dad. My dad has Alzheimer's disease. He started showing the symptoms about 12 years ago, and he was officially diagnosed in 2005. Now he's really pretty sick. He needs help eating. He needs help getting dressed. He doesn't really know where he is or when it is. And it's been really, really hard. My dad was my hero and my mentor for most of my life. And I've spent the last decade watching him disappear. My dad's not alone. There's about uh, 35 million people globally living with some kind of dementia. And by 2030, they're expecting that to double to 70 million. That's a lot of people. Dementia scares us. The confused faces and shaky hands of people who have dementia, the big numbers of people who get it, they frighten us. And because of that fear, we tend to do one of two things. We go into denial. It's not me. It has nothing to do with me. It's never going to happen to me. Or we decide that we're going to prevent dementia. And it will never happen to us because we are going to do everything right, and it won't come and get us. I'm looking for a third way. I'm preparing to get Alzheimer's disease. Prevention is good, and I'm doing the things that you can do to prevent Alzheimer's. I'm eating right, I'm exercising every day, I'm keeping my mind active. That's what the research says you should do, but the research also shows that there's nothing that will 100% protect you. If the monster wants you, the monster's gonna get you. That's what happened with my dad. My dad was a bilingual college professor. His hobbies were chess, bridge, and writing op-eds. <laughs> he got dementia anyway. If the monster wants you, the monster's going to get you, especially if you're me, because Alzheimer's tends to run in families. So I'm preparing to get Alzheimer's disease. Based on what I've learned from taking care of my father and researching what it's like to live with dementia, I'm focusing on three things in my preparation. I'm changing what I do for fun. 
I'm working to build my physical strength. And this is the hard one. I'm trying to become a better person. Let's start with the hobbies. When you get dementia, it gets harder and harder to enjoy yourself. You can't sit and have long talks with your old friends because you don't know who they are. It's confusing to watch television and often very frightening. And reading is just about impossible. When you care for someone with dementia and you get training, they train you to engage them in activities that are familiar, hands-on, open-ended. With my dad, that turned out to be letting him fill out forms. He was a college professor at a state school. He knows what paperwork looks like. <laughs> he'll sign his name on every line. He'll check all the boxes. He'll put numbers in where he thinks there should be numbers. But it got me thinking, what would my caregivers do with me? I'm my father's daughter. I read, I write, I think about global health a lot. Would they give me academic journals so I could scribble in the margins? Would they give me charts and graphs that I could color? So I've been trying to learn to do things that are hands-on. I've always liked to draw, so I'm doing it more, even though I'm really very bad at it. I am learning some basic origami. I can make a really great box. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm teaching myself to knit, which so far I can knit a blob. <laughs> But you know, it doesn't matter if, it's, if I'm actually good at it. What matters is that my hands know how to do it. Because the more things that are familiar, The more things my hands know how to do, the more things that I can be happy and busy doing when my brain's not running the show anymore. They say that people who are engaged in activities are happier, easier for their caregivers to look after, and may even slow the progress of the disease. That all seems like win to me. I want to be as happy as I can for as long as I can. A lot of people don't know that Alzheimer's actually has physical symptoms as well as cognitive symptoms. You lose your sense of balance, you get muscle tremors, and that tends to lead people to being less and less mobile. They get scared to walk around, they get scared to move. So I'm doing activities that will build my sense of balance. I'm doing yoga and tai chi to improve my balance so that when I start to lose it, I'll still be able to be mobile. I'm doing weight-bearing exercise so that I have the muscle strength so that when I start to wither, I have more time that I can still move around. Finally, The third thing, I'm trying to become a better person. My dad was kind and loving before he had Alzheimer's, and he's kind and loving now. I've seen him lose his intellect, his sense of humor, his language skills. But I've also seen this. He loves me, he loves my sons, he loves my brother and my mom and his caregivers. And that love makes us want to be around him even now, even when it's so hard. When you take away everything, that he ever learned in this world. His naked heart still shines. I was never as kind as my dad, and I was never as loving. And what I need now is to learn to be like that. I need a heart so pure that if it's stripped bare by dementia, it will survive. I don't want to get Alzheimer's disease. What I want is a cure in the next 20 years soon enough to protect me. <laughs> But if it comes for me, I'm going to be ready. Thank you. What a powerful speech. If the dementia monster wants you, it can get you. In the beginning, I asked, why should you care? So if you're on a college campus, you're 20 or you're in your 30s or maybe even your 40s, why should you care about dementia or Alzheimer's right now? And I would just simply say the steps 
and the knowledge that you take now could help you down the road. Or you could be the change. You could be the scientist, the neurobiologist that comes up with the cure. Who knows? But you have to care first. And I want to end with memory loss is not the only diagnosis for Alzheimer's or dementia. So I know my mother says, oh, I'm losing my memory. I might have Alzheimer's. If you're worried, if you have Alzheimer's or dementia, of course, go to the doctor. Do not self-diagnose yourself online. As always, you can find any article or facts discussed today on my page on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Black Radio 11 or Twitter at Serving Christ 11. Also look for the show on iTunes on the podcast app under 91.7 The Edge WSUW. As always, make yesterday jealous by working harder today and give love even in the darkest times. DJ Special K is in the building, y'all. So this is still Hip Hop Hum Day. Call him up or send a text, request something. Our line is 262-472-1312. I'm looking at our screen right now. It looks like we had someone 1136 sending a request. So keep sending them. If we have it, we can play it for you. Stay tuned.